0: I've got two guests with me on the Fit for Purpose podcast this week. Nick Beach, the Vice-Chancellor of Middlesex University and Andrea Delaska, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Learning and Innovation. We talk about how the university thrives with its diverse group of students and how as a university it's really focused ever more on building excellent links with employers. And of course, we get to hear Nick and Andrea's advice to their younger self. Nick and Andrea, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I guess it's been a, a difficult time at Middlesex over the last few months, as for many universities. How are you coping as a new autumn term gets underway?
1: Um, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll start off by saying something. I mean, one of the Great things about our students is they never really go away, to be honest. So um, we've got lots of students who spent the whole summer um working in the NHS and working with us or volunteering and doing local work. Um, so it's really just a kind of ramping up for us. We're excited to be um, welcoming a whole set of new students to us, and, and for them, there's a whole set of challenges about how they're going to do that. And um, I think Andrea will say something about the educational side in a moment. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that's worth stressing for us is how valuable the students are as members of the community. And sometimes if you look at what comes out in the press, you'd think that students do nothing but have parties. And I just think that's not true. Um, actually, most of our students do a huge amount of uh, volunteering and part time work and are really responsible. And they've um, voted for a no alcohol policy on campus. So that, you know, I think they're really applied to work and to making a difference in society. And I'm, I'm really proud of that.
0: And Andrea, obviously it's been really challenging to respond to the lockdown and then the, the challenge of Norton Term when you have social distancing and local lockdowns, all of that. How, have, how has everyone coped with it? It must have been very difficult,
2: um, not only for the students, but also, also for staff. It has been Justine and I I think that's really important to emphasize that the reason we've done so well and I think most universities across the sector is because staff and students have come together to find a way to deal with this unexpected challenge originally going online very quickly and then moving from an emergency pivot to the online space and Zoom and Teams and and all the platforms we have to actually proper online learning and looking at how can we go into the autumn and then probably a a lot of the new academic year, working together in exciting and engaging ways and not just compromise on, um, you know, sort of how we engage with learning and uh, practice and um, working uh, with each other, but really go new innovative ways and include everybody. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we need to make sure that everyone, whatever their home environment, what, uh, wherever they come from, whatever their journey is, that they have the opportunity to benefit and fully participate. And actually, just just to add, we've actually already started because mm-hmm. um, we know that, especially our new students, will have had quite a break outside of a, a structured educational environment, but also will be quite concerned about what is going to happen in the autumn and what what will the university experience be like, especially in a, if it's new to you. So we've already started with our pre-arrival program, which is fully online. And um, one of the key goals of it is is to develop some skills and and to help students cope with technology and find their way through uh, the online environment, but also to build that all important community that Nick talked about um, online and, and through a screen, so to say. I
0: remember when I visited the university, uh, which obviously was before lockdown, one of the things that really struck me, I I walked through the door into the the main atrium really of the building, and you're just right in the middle of a student union day, but it was incredible how you had all these stalls, it was really bringing everyone together. And I think what really struck me talking to you and the, the, the students that I met was how much of a community it is, but how much the students themselves are part of running it, maintaining it, um, you know, feeding it with its energy and all of that. They're really at the heart of it, aren't they, uh, for Middlesex, not, not just in terms of the learning experience, obviously, but actually how the wider university
2: works and runs. You, I'm glad you mentioned the students' success festival because that kind of in, encapsulates that approach. It is the Student Success Festival is actually there to ensure that all students feel comfortable engaging with the support that is available in the university. Many of our students are the first in their families to go to university, they commute, they have other responsibilities and sometimes, you know, it can be quite difficult to to go and ask for help or, or to become part of a community, a students union society and we work really hard to ensure that um, all students feel comfortable uh, joining the community and um, using our students and working closely with our students on this means that uh, you talk to your peers a lot of the time when you want to find out you know where can i get help where can i where could i find like-minded people so it's absolutely crucial um, that um, working with our students union but also with our student learning assistants um, and and other student groups, ambassadors, whom we pay and who say they really feel they are Middlesex employees and they contribute to the success of their peers. And Nick, I mean, you obviously
0: have come into this role as vice chancellor comparatively recently. What's your impression of the university having, having been in the role now for a few months?
1: Um, So you're absolutely right. I started at the beginning of February and was um, going around trying to meet as many people as possible. (laughs) And then six weeks later, we're all doing it at a distance. Um, I think two or three things. One, you mentioned the word community, Justine, and I think that is so important for us and it's so evident in the way that people are. So there's a real commitment to each other and to having a, a learning community in which it's not that any of us pretend to know all the answers but that we're actually really interested in each other and how we can be in dialogue and how we can become changed ourselves because we engage with others. And one of the things you mentioned a moment ago about the student success festival and and the impression of the students when you come in, I think that is absolutely central. And we've been um, really thinking about ourselves as doing co-leadership with the students. So Mm -hmm. it's not really a top-down model. It's much more about Um, Working out what our values and our priorities are and the students are right in the heart of that in the way that um, The staff are as well. And so we're really not an us-and-them type community I think there's one big us, but it's quite diverse. So people bring different things to the table um, Mm. But we're united in our values and what we're trying to do with that Um, So that's what really gives it a generative conversation. I think
0: I think the other aspect of the work that we looked at through the opportunity action plan on the social mobility pledge was also just how many of your students are commuter students. I think it's easy for people to think that university is just 18 year olds who've just done their A-levels turning up and then doing a degree. But for Middlesex, actually it's a very different cohort of, of people. Some are more mature. Often they have other responsibilities. Tell us a little bit about how you feel that, brings a real diversity to the university, but also the challenges of being able to to succeed with such a diverse group of of people.
1: Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, we're one of the most diverse universities in the country by far. And that is a wonderful privilege to be part of that diversity. Um, But it means that you've then got to be really conscious of translation between different ways of thinking. Um, so we've got great diversity, for example, of faith groups, we've got um, diversity in terms of uh, ethnicity and of gender, but also in terms of um, uh, backgrounds, and that makes a big difference. So for me, it's it's about us being a learning, inquiring community in which our starting point is not that we assume we know what the other people think or are like, and we certainly don't assume that we're all the same as each other. So you don't tend to generalize like that, but you do mm-hmm. start off from mm-hmm. some questions to, to say, what is it that we're trying to achieve here? How do we best learn and how do we best learn in collaboration with each other? So there's a huge amount that I learn from our commuter students who are balancing and juggling many responsibilities, as you say, but bring different experience into all of our sessions. And that's what actually can help us be, really very creative in the way that we work and what we learn and what we take then out into the world of work.
0: And I think just touching on that aspect of employers, Andrea, I felt what was actually most impressive about the students that I met was this sense that doing a degree isn't easy. And yet these were people who had other responsibilities. Uh, One student I met was commuting for literally An hour and a half a day to get into lectures and and then head home and had wider responsibilities obviously beyond just studying for the degree they really have to learn how to get through a to-do list they've got to be super organized they've got to be really resilient to to, to get through this degree even when other life pressures are bearing down on them I think one of the things that really struck me and, and brought it home at that visit that I was on was how valuable those skills are to employers. And I hope that more of the social mobility pledge employers are steadily shifting to understand that we've had this thing called disadvantage, but actually in a way that's half the story because that journey that a lot of your students are on gives them a lot of skills that are highly valuable for them in later life and highly valuable for employers that they might end up working with.
2: I, I think that's a really good summary and it's so striking you know for us even still every day what what unique strengths our students bring and you know how their life experiences have shaped them and you know how um, living at home having responsibilities for your family working um having you know being the first in in family to go to uni- the university how that gives them a unique perspective on on what is discussed in the classroom and employers are really beginning to recognize that we have some really good contacts and they our partners tell us that uh, they really need that diversity in their businesses to succeed so we're we're on a good journey there but the the challenge I suppose is to really help our students to translate that uh, grit and that experience and that ambition that they have into something that employers can understand as valuable for their uh, business. So Mm -hmm. we really don't say, write write a CV and these are the bits and pieces that you should mention because often they haven't had that opportunity of travel or an internship in the summer, an unpaid one, or maybe even a volunteering opportunity. But, But they bring other things to the table. So we say, tell your story. Um, make sense uh, for an employer out of what you bring to the table and that's been really successful and uh, we have a number of projects uh, with the ministry of justice with pwc and others where we are really working together to see how we can use the strengths that our students bring and how they articulate it to open up opportunity for them
0: It is incredible. I I met a um, young person the other day who was in the UK, had had a job in Australia and had been there for several months just before coronavirus hit. And then when coronavirus hit, took the decision that it was probably better on balance to come back to the UK before everything started getting really locked down. And that's what she did. And subsequently, everything did get locked down. And now she can't go back at the moment to Australia (laughs) But in the meantime she's kept doing her job remotely so she literally gets up to start work at four o'clock every day um because that's what the australian job requires now when i was talking to her i said well frankly most employees would be massively impressed that you know six months down the line plus you've done that and are still getting up at that time because it's a huge huge commitment to be able to totally shift your life around to be able to take advantage of an opportunity that she really appreciated and I think employees increasingly understand that those are the sorts of skills of resilience that they really need in their employees and actually they're highly valuable but ones that a student at Middlesex has probably absolutely got and just needs to understand how they explain that to an employer. So the girl I met would never have dreamt of saying, oh, by the way, I've just been getting up in the middle of the night because I'm so committed to my job. But actually for employers, it, it does matter. And I think as I think you should say, Andrea, helping them understand that um, is, is part of the challenge. But I think from your perspective, Nick, and you know the wider experience you've had in the higher education system, When you look at what kinds of changes we need in employers and their attitudes it is important isn't it that we have a really open workplace and recruitment practices so that fantastic students like the ones at Middlesex University really can have those doors open to them and and have a good crack at getting the opportunities that are out there.
1: Yeah I completely agree and I think the drive that you're talking about in that lovely example is absolutely evident in, in our students too one in seven of our students becomes an entrepreneur and I don't think that's any accident um, that is because they've got such drive and they've pushed themselves beyond the normal limits to do what they've done in their degrees and then they're uh, fantastic at starting up businesses and social enterprise subsequently but also I think the doors of many large employers are not as open, really, as they would aspire to them being. Um, and, and there's lots of systemic forms of, of bias, often unconscious in the system. So even in London, if you look at the ethnicity pay gap, that's over 20%, 21.7% um, disadvantage in terms of pay for minority ethnicities whereas for our student population it's over 63 percent from those same ethnicities Mm -hmm. so there's just indications there that i think while the students are really moving on they're being really ambitious um they're doing exciting things and a lot of the corporate world wants to be in that um in that ballpark there's a bit of catching up i think to do in in that level and that's probably about really opening up both employment systems, talent management programs, mentoring, and and other sorts of support in which we can help um, help the students access both employment and portfolio careers and entrepreneurship alongside those things.
0: Totally agree. And I think there's that classic, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. And that's why role models are so important. And my sense is we've come a long way on, for example, gender um, over the last decade, but we're way behind when it comes to ethnicity, you know, wider social mobility challenges. And I think really that's from my perspective where the focus really needs to to be much higher over the coming years. And the reason I set up the social mobility pledge was I feel that businesses are really missing out on talent if they don't make the changes on how they identify it and, and nurture it and, and bring it into their organizations. And actually, the successful companies of the future will be the ones that absolutely have clocked the value of a Middlesex graduate and then made sure that how they recruit uh, doesn't in any way stop that person from, you know, having a really good crack of of the whip at getting into getting into those roles. So, I mean, from your perspective, for both of you, you know, what are some of the things you'd like to see employers do differently? Um, for example, that would that would help make those doors a bit more open to uh, To as many graduates as possible. Perhaps if I if I go to Andrea first and then come back to to you again,
2: Nick That's a really good question. And it's what we talk to employers most about I think the main thing is that we really want employers to think again what what talent means to them and, and what skills they they really need and What evidence they use to find out, you know, sort of whether the person who submitted Mm -hmm. something in writing probably that, you know, sort of is in a pile of 1000 applications, so that they really look at, um, take a different look at the young people in front of them and um, ask in a different way, uh, in, in terms of applications. Don't just, you know, ask for the traditional CV and do the traditional interview and look to what they themselves may have done uh, on their educational journeys, travel, do volunteering, have a gap year. Because many of the very talented young people out there haven't had that opportunity, but they will bring something much more valuable uh, uh, to the business.
0: Mm, I think that's good advice. Nick, how about you? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, all all of the above, and just to emphasize one or two bits, I mean, it's really, I think, about forming collaborative advantage between these different parts of society. So it's a huge advantage to the employers to reach in and work with us, and that's what we want to do with them. So giving opportunities for project work so that students aren't Mm -hmm. having unpaid internships when they're already doing Mm part-time jobs to support themselves. So project opportunities that we could help facilitate, I think. Reimagining and rethinking through the talent pipeline so it doesn't end up as a leaky pipeline, which it is at mm-hmm. the moment. Um, certainly redefining how evidence of competency is uh, gathered and understood. So, for example, thinking about gender and name blind parts to selection processes uh, and making sure that we're trying to eliminate some of those thoughts. And um, just in one of the things that you mentioned a moment ago, role modeling and having access to those role models. So it's good to be able to see the people on websites and and other sources like that. Another thing that can be really effective is people who have recently moved into those organizations being accessible to students and to others to have a conversation about how that's happened and to build the relationship to personalize it.
0: I think that's really good advice. And it is a, a long journey that we have to go, I think, personally i think that what's interesting if you look at the progress although more needs to be done but the progress we've made on gender there are there is learning there we can apply i think to ethnicity and also to wider social mobility but it is absolutely vital that those people who are in those leadership roles across industry understand that there are these wider issues of diversity i think increasingly many do but i think it, it was perhaps you uh, Andrea that talked about the fact the students bring different ways of thinking and That is exactly what companies need these days in order to help them succeed, so It's one of the reasons why I think hopefully through the pledge we can have more companies take a fresh look at how they look at talent now, I wanted to ask both of you about your journeys because Not everybody ends up getting into a senior role in HE Uh, doing the sorts of things that both of you are doing. Uh, Nick, tell us a little bit about the journey you've taken. Were you always somebody who was going to have a career in academia or education or did you start out in an entirely different place?
1: Um, I I think I probably started out in a different (laughs) place. I was the first and actually the only person in my generation and my family to go to university. And... um, That wasn't through any lack of support so I mean I'm of a generation where a a tiny minority of people actually went to university Mm -hmm. Um, so I I went with a level of interest but nowhere near as interesting as I am now and I actually had a kind of conversion event while I was at university I can remember it very precisely I was um, sitting as you do reading Descartes and suddenly was just challenged to see the world in a completely different way. It was that I could, I felt physically as if my brain was growing and changing. And I had a similar experience reading Wittgenstein a couple of years later, that just really pushed me to want to have the most difficult thoughts available and then to do something with them. And Mm -hmm. so it didn't occur to me that even at that point that a, a career in education might be the way of doing that. But some years later, after I'd done a number of other things, Um, I had an opportunity to work with some students and I was a practitioner at that time. And I just absolutely loved it. You know, it just really inspired me. Um, And so I applied for an academic job, assuming that I wouldn't get it because I didn't have a PhD. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, I I think, okay, I'll I'll learn through the process and work out what what I need to do. And I did actually get the job. Which was um, you know in at the deep end, and then I did my phd part time, and that was really great um, experience as well because it was so hard you know you 're talking about the hours of work and so on and that was working very, very long hours. I remember my induction, which was very short and in which the instructions were basically if you get up an hour earlier every day, then you 've gained seven hours in the week that 's a whole day 's work and that was the end of my induction so <laughs> the, <laughs> there is something about that, um, being hugely excited by what you're doing and finding that thing that excites you enough to get up, at, you know, in your example at four o'clock in the morning or whatever the time is that one gets up, but to, to really push yourselves on those things. So I ended up in a place that just worked for me um, and I've been I've been given a lot of help along the way. So we talked a little bit about mentorship. I've had a huge amount not so much of formal mentorship, but of informal mentorship of people prepared to give a bit of time to listen, to help me adjust gradually over time. Uh, and that's really been crucial to me. So for na- now, mentorship is absolutely central to what I like doing, to what I learn from. And I've got um, three reverse mentors who are really helping me do a lot of learning at the moment. So members of staff and students that, um, that do that for me at the moment.
0: Brilliant. Interesting how, in a sense, that, that person who gave you that first break getting into that um, academic role did exactly what you've just been saying, both of you, that businesses need to do, which is so sort of beyond, if you like, a narrow sort of technical qualification that they might have expected you to have to, to the potential, clearly, that yep. you had more widely. Um, Andrea, how about you?
2: Tell us a bit about the journey. You know I just realized I've never really stopped to think about what got me into education <laughs> I don't think I planned my career very carefully but um, I think Nick I realized long before I studied Wittgenstein that um, actually <clears throat> I might have a, have a role to play and I could be quite passionate about this and I had that pivotal moment that you described at university. I had that before I was 10 years old. And it wasn't really a positive experience, I have to say. So I really had a love for learning and new things and and making sense of them. And I was quite good at it. I I was a good student in primary school. And at the end of primary school, I had my heart set on going to grammar school. And I realized at the time that that was the only way to get into university later. I didn't have a good concept of what university was, but I knew I wanted to go there. And in Austria, in the early 70s, that that was, you know, the the only route um, into higher education. But the headmaster of my school who had to make a recommendation uh, which school um, I should go to told my mother, I should definitely not go to grammar school because she could not help me with studying Latin. And I remember that I was really outraged and a little concerned and um, I don't know, how I did it because I was a shy child, but I really dug in and I got into grammar school. And I think this experience, this episode gave me a really strong and abiding sense of the importance of education to social mobility, but also the very real challenges that children Mm. from underrepresented backgrounds can face. And. I think that commitment uh, to to changing that through my own involvement in education um, started, started then. But beyond that, it, it was more opportunities opening up, um, starting early to, to teach to earn money as a student and realizing what a rewarding profession it was and um, what interesting people uh, you would meet and what an impact you could have.
0: Brilliant, brilliant story. And, and, you know, in a sense, just also um, incredible that one subject, Latin, could have entirely changed. (laughs) that no one even speaks, um, maybe somebody after this podcast will correct me on that. I I think I'm right though. You know, that, that that could have so completely changed things is is pretty mad, I, you know. I remember with my A levels, um, I ended up for various reasons doing physics. Well, I was rubbish at physics, and um, yet it could have completely prevented me from doing economics at university. I just about got a good enough grade, um, so it didn't get in the way. But it did seem quite perverse that you know this totally unrelated subject could stop me from getting onto the the course. Of the subject that I absolutely loved and was was much much better at, and I think in a sense what what you say sort of underlines that actually there are lots of bumps in the road, and it's how and whether you can find ways to get over them that sometimes is the difference between able to you know get places and not. I think for both of you, I, I'll, maybe I'll come back to you first, Andrea, and then and then um, in a sense finish with Nick. If you were, if you were little Andrea now, um, giving yourself some advice, um, knowing what you know now, with all of that wider experience you've had since, what do you think it would be? Would be Andrea. What would you tell little Andrea?
2: Another intriguing question, and the, I think the advice I would give to my younger self, probably at any age, as a little girl and as a young woman, and maybe to girls and young women um now is that you don't have to be the most polite person in the room be yourself and speak your mind very good i like that
0: um certainly certainly a woman after my own heart um and nick you've had plenty of time to think about this now <laughs> i think all those crucial extra moments when i went to andrea first
1: yes I'm, I'm, what would I'm, I'm what do you think
0: you'd give I'm little teaching. nick as a bit of
1: advice um it's it's a little bit similar to andrea and it's about anxiety and um i think certainly for me and i suspect for many other people you can have lots of anxiety about getting things wrong or being seen to get things wrong um and that can lead to levels of stress that really get in the way of taking the risks that you need to take or sometimes being confident enough, as Andrea has exhibited. And and Justine, as you did, in terms of saying, well, physics wasn't the thing, but it's probably really useful that you did some physics and can move on from it. So I think it's about not being governed by anxiety, but being um, looking to others and being part of a community and looking to yourself to say, sometimes it's okay not to be great at something, Mm. just give it a try and then carry on and find the thing that is for you.
0: I think those are brilliant bits of advice and you know my I, I think there are lots of reasons why I ended up becoming an MP or, or, or sort of having a go at doing that but one of them was I just always felt that people had a lot to offer and if you could create a version of Britain where everyone got that chance then it really would be a much better country and this sense that nobody's perfect at anything. I know when we were all at school, there were some of our friends who were very annoying and were academically very good at everything. But the reality is, you know, everybody's got something that they do, I think really well. And the challenge for the education system is almost to tease out from all of us, what our thing is. And I think if you can leave the education system with a bit of a sense of your thing, then I think it really starts to help you work out where you're gonna go and and gives you a sense of purpose really. Um, and clearly both of you, you know, at different times had that sort of light bulb moment about almost what your thing was going to be and, and it's why, you know, those journeys end up, you know, coinciding with you both, both at Middlesex and able to hopefully do really great things working together at the university.
1: I think that's right, Justine. And the other thing is to just keep on exposing yourself to things you're not that good at. Um, so a few years ago, I learned how to play the mandolin and I'm complete rubbish and it took me ages and all that sort of thing. I'm a really enthusiastic and terrible runner, but actually it just helps remind me what it's like to learn something that's difficult to do and how much actually being part of a learning community is, the, is really the heart of everything.
0: And it's just about new experiences, isn't it? Yeah. You know, don't stop learning and just keep on trying things because um, it's almost the the sort of vibrancy that you can bring to life through just having a new challenge. Doesn't you? Don't necessarily have to have one, but actually, it's hugely valuable to to keep on learning through life.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Brilliant. Well, uh, we're really looking forward to getting chance to to launch your report is going to be all about how you are through Middlesex universities work, creating connections for your students, for your graduates, Um, how above all you're enabling people to get the chance to do a degree and to get into higher education for whom there are so many reasons on a different day in a different life, why it would be all a bit too hard, but they've got that potential. And I think to be able to allow them to explore that and fulfill a dream for many of them, which is getting chance to get to university, something that as you say, Nick, for, for me as as well as for you, no one else in my family had done, is hugely important. So really excited about all the work we're doing together. And thank you so much for doing the podcast with us. Um, Nick and Andrea, thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: Justine.
0: What's so interesting about Middlesex University is how many commuter students it has. And Andrea and Nick are right to point out that they're often balancing a whole range of responsibilities in life. Perhaps they have caring or family commitments, they may well be studying alongside holding down a job, and they might well have quite a long commute to even get into the university to be able to study. And because of this, their many commuter students really have to develop a whole range of extra skills if they're going to be able to succeed on their course in spite of all these other pressures. And that extra resilience and passion can really be a positive for employers down the line. We all know that in sport, the best athletes are the ones that have the toughest training. And for commuter students, it's very much the same. I think that businesses are now beginning to realise just how valuable those skills and experiences really are to an organisation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit for Purpose. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and share with your friends, family and colleagues. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes.